0: Part 4, Chapter 2, Part 3 of A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. In 1850 was passed the Cruel Fugitive Slave Law. What deeds were done then? Then to our free states were transported those scenes of fear and agony before acted only on slave soil. Churches were broken up. Trembling Christians fled. Husbands and wives were separated. Then to the poor African was fulfilled the dread doom denounced on the wandering Jew. thou shalt find no ease neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest but thy life shall hang in doubt before thee and thou shalt fear day and night and shall have no assurance of thy life then all the world went one way all the wealth all the power all the fashion now if ever was a time for christ's church to stand up and speak for the poor the general assembly met she was earnestly memorialized to speak out never was a more glorious opportunity to show that the kingdom of christ is not of this world a protest then from a body so numerous and respectable might have saved the american church from the disgrace it now wears in the eyes of all nations Oh. That she had once spoken. What said the Presbyterian Church? She said nothing, and the thanks of the political leaders were accorded to her. She had done all they desired. Meanwhile, under this course of things, the number of presbyteries in slaveholding states had increased from three to twenty and this church has now under its care from fifteen to twenty thousand members in slave states so much for the course of a decided anti-slavery body in union with a few slave-holding churches so much for a discreet judicious charitable and brotherly attempt to test by experience the question what communion hath light with darkness and what concord hath christ with belial the slave system is darkness the slave system is belial and every attempt to harmonize it with the profession of christianity will be just like these let it be here recorded however that a small body of the most determined opponents of slavery in the presbyterian church seceded and formed free presbyterian church whose terms of communion are an entire withdrawal from slaveholding whether this principle be a correct one or not it is worthy of remark that it was adopted and carried out by the quakers the only body of christians involved in this evil who have ever succeeded in freeing themselves from it Whether church discipline and censure is an appropriate medium for correcting such immoralities and heresies in individuals or not, it is enough for the case that this has been the established opinion and practice of the Presbyterian Church. If the argument of Charles Sumner be contemplated, it will be seen that the history of this Presbyterian Church and the history of our United States have strong points of similarity in both at the outset the strong influence was anti-slavery even among slaveholders in both there was no difference of opinion as to the desirableness of abolishing slavery ultimately both made a concession the smallest which could possibly be imagined both made the concession in all good faith contemplating the speedy removal and extinction of the evil and the history of both is alike the little point of concession spread and absorbed and acquired from year to year till the united states and the presbyterian church stand just where they do worse has been the history of the methodist church the history of the baptist church shows the same principle and as to the episcopal church it has never done anything but comply either north or south it differs from all the rest in that it has never had any resisting element except now and then when a protestant like william j a worthy son of him who signed the declaration of independence the slave power has been a united consistent steady uncompromising principle the resisting element has been for many years wavering self-contradictory compromising there has been it is true a deep and ever-increasing hostility to slavery in a decided majority of ministers and church members in free states taken as individuals nevertheless the sincere opponents of slavery have been unhappily divided amongst themselves as to principles and measures, the extreme principle and measures of some causing a hurtful reaction in others. Besides this, other great plans of benevolence have occupied their time and attention, and the result has been that they have formed altogether inadequate conceptions of the extent to which the cause of God on earth is imperiled, by american slavery and of the duty of christians in such a crisis they have never had such a conviction as has aroused and called out and united their energies on this as on other great causes meantime great organic influences in church and state are much against their wishes neutralizing their influence against slavery sometimes even arraign it in its favor. The perfect inflexibility of the slave system, and its absolute refusal to allow any discussion of the subject, has reduced all those who wish to have religious action in common with slaveholding churches, to the alternative of either giving up the support of the South for that object, or giving up their protest against slavery. This has held out a strong temptation to men who have had benevolent and laudable objects to carry, and who did not realize the full peril of the slave system, nor appreciate the moral power of Christian protest against it. When, therefore, cases have arisen where the choice lay between sacrificing what they considered the interests of a good object, or giving up their right of protest, they have generally preferred the latter. The decision has always gone in this way. The slave power will not concede. We must. The South says, we will take no religious book that has anti-slavery principles in it. The Sunday School Union drops Mr. Gallaudet's History of Joseph. Why? Because they approve of slavery? Not at all. They look upon slavery with horror. What then? The South will not read our books if we do not do it. They will not give up. And we must. We can do more good by introducing gospel truth with this omission than we can by using our Protestant power. This probably was thought and said honestly. The argument is plausible, but the concession is nonetheless real. The slave power has got the victory and got it by the very best of men from the very best of motives and so that it has the victory it cares not how it gets it and although it may be said that the amount in each case of these concessions is in itself but small yet when we come to add together all that have been made from time to time by every different denomination and by every different benevolent organization the aggregate is truly appalling and in consequence of all these united what are we now reduced to here we are in this crisis here in this nineteenth century when all the world is dissolving and reconstructing on principles of universal liberty we americans who are sending our bibles and missionaries to christianized Mohammedan lands are upholding with all our might and all our influence a system of worn-out heathenism which even the bay of tunis has repudiated the southern church has baptized it in the name of the father the son and the holy ghost this worn-out old effete system of roman slavery which christianity once gradually but certainly abolished has been dug up out of its dishonored grave. A few laws of extra cruelty, such as Rome never knew, have been added to it, and now baptized and sanctioned by the whole southern church. It is going abroad conquering, and to conquer. The only power left to the northern church is the protesting power, and will they use it? Ask the tract society if they will publish a tract on the sinfulness of slavery, though such tract would be made up solely from the writings of John Edwards or Dr. Hopkins, ask the Sunday School Union if it will publish the facts about this heathenism, as it has facts about Burma and Hindustan. Will they? Oh, Oh, that they would answer yes. Now, it is freely conceded, that all these sad results have come in consequence of the motions of deliberations of good men who meant well. But it has been well said that, in critical times, when one wrong step entails the most disastrous consequences, to mean well is not enough. In the crisis of a disease, to mean well and lose the patient, in the height of a tempest to mean well and wreck the ship, in a great moral conflict, to mean well and lose the battle? These are things to be lamented. We are wrecking the ship. We are losing the battle. There is no mistake about it. And a little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little more folding of the hands to sleep, and we shall awake in the whirls of that maelstrom which has but one passage, and that downward there is yet one body of christians whose influence we have not considered and that a most important one the congregationalists of new england and of the west from the very nature of congregationalism she cannot give so untitled a testimony as presbyterianism yet congregationalism has spoken out on slavery individual bodies have spoken very strongly and individual clergymen still stronger they have remonstrated with the general assembly and they have had very decided anti-slavery papers but considering the whole state of public sentiment considering the critical nature of the exigency the mighty sweep and force of all the causes which are going in favor of slavery has the vehemence and force of the testimony of congregationalism as a body been equal to the dreadful emergency It has testimonies on record, very full and explicit, on the evils of slavery. But testimonies are not all that is wanted. There is abundance of testimonies on record in the Presbyterian Church, for that matter, quite as good, quite as strong, as any that have been given by Congregationalism. There have been quite as many anti-slavery men in the New School Presbyterian Church as in the Congregational. Quite as strong anti-slavery newspapers, and the Presbyterian Church has had trial of this matter that the Congregational Church has never been exposed to. It has had slaveholders in its own communion, and from this trial, Congregationalism has as yet been mostly exempt. Being thus free, ought not the testimony of congregationalism to have been more than equal? Ought it not to have done more than testify? ought it not to have fought for the question like the brave three hundred in thermopylae left to defend the liberties of greece when all others had fled should they not have thrown in heart and soul body and spirit have they done it compare the earnestness which congregationalism has spent upon some other subjects with the earnestness which has been spent upon this dr taylor taught that all sin consists in sinning, and therefore that there could be no sin till a person has sinned. And Dr. Bushnell teaches some modifications of the doctrine of the Trinity, nobody seeming to know precisely what. The South Carolina presbyteries teach that slavery is approved by God and sanctioned by the example of patriarchs and prophets. Supposing these now to be all heresies which of them is the worst which will bring the worst practical results and if congregationalism had fought this slavery heresy as some of her leaders fought dr Bushnell and dr taylor would not the style of battle have been more earnest have not both these men been denounced as dangerous heresiarchs and as preaching doctrines that tend to infidelity And pray where does this other doctrine tend as sure as there is a god in heaven is the certainty that if the bible really did defend slavery fifty years hence would see every honourable and high-minded man an infidel has then the past influence of congregationalism been according to the nature of the exigency and the weight of the subject But the late convention of Congregationalists at Albany, including ministers both from New England and the western states, did take a stronger and more decided ground. Here is their resolution. Start of Resolution Resolved That in the opinion of this convention, it is the tendency of the gospel, wherever it is preached in its purity, to correct all social evils, and to destroy sin in all its forms and that it is the duty of missionary societies to grant aid to churches in slaveholding states in the support of such ministers only as shall so preach the gospel and inculcate the principles and application of gospel discipline that with the blessing of god it shall have its full effect in awakening and enlightening the moral sense in regard to slavery and in bringing to pass the speedy abolition of that stupendous wrong and that wherever a minister is not permitted so to preach he should in accordance with the directions of christ depart out of that city end resolution this resolution is a matter of hope and gratulation in many respects it was passed in a very large convention the largest ever assembled in this country fully representing the congregationalism of the united states and the occasion of its meeting was considered in some sort as marking a new era in the progress of this denomination the resolution was passed unanimously it is decided in its expression and looks to practical action which is what is wanted it says it will support no ministers in slave states whose preaching does not tend to destroy slavery, and that, if they are not allowed to preach freely on the subject, they must depart. That the ground thus taken will be efficiently sustained may be inferred from the fact that the whole missionary society, which is the organ of this body, as well as of the New School Presbyterian Church, has uniformly taken decided ground upon this subject and their instructions to missionaries sent to slave states these instructions are ably set forth in their report of march eighteen fifty three when the application was made to them in eighteen fifty from a slave state for missionaries who would let slavery alone they replied to them in the most decided language that it could not be done that on the contrary they must understand that one grand object in sending missionaries to slave states is as far as possible to redeem society from all forms of sin and that if utter silence respecting slavery is to be maintained one of the greatest inducements to send or retain missionaries in the slave states is taken away the society furthermore instructed their missionaries if they could not be heard on this subject in one city or village to go to another and they express their conviction that their missionaries have made progress in awakening the consciences of the people they say that they do not suffer the subject to sleep that they do not let it alone because it is a delicate subject but they discharge their consciences whether their message be well received or whether, as in some instances, it subjects them to opposition, opprobrium, and personal danger, and that where their endeavors to do this have not been tolerated, they have, in repeated cases, at great sacrifice, resigned their position and departed to other fields. In their report of this year, they also quote letters from ministers in slaveholding states, by which it appears that they have actually secured in the face of much opposition the right publicly to preach and propagate their sentiments on this subject one of these missionaries says speaking of slavery we are determined to remove this great difficulty in our way or die in the attempt as christians and free men we will suffer this libel on our religion and institutions to exist no longer this is noble ground And while we are recording the protesting power, let us not forget the Scotch seceders and covenanters, who, with a pertinacity and decision worthy of the children of the old covenant, have kept themselves clear from the sin of slavery, and have uniformly protested against it. Let us remember also that the Quakers did pursue a course which actually freed all of their body from the sin of slaveholding, thus showing to all other denominations that what has been done once can be done again also in all denominations individual ministers and christians in ours that have tried men's souls have stood up to bear their testimony albert barnes in philadelphia standing in the midst of a great rich church on the borders of a slave state and with all those temptations to complicity which have silenced so many has stood up in calm fidelity and declared the whole counsel of god upon this subject nay more he recorded this solemn protest that no influences out of this church should sustain slavery an hour if it were not sustained in it and in the last session of the general assembly which met at washington disregarding all suggestions of policy he boldly held the presbyterian church up to the strength of her past declarations and declared it her duty to attempt the entire abolition of slavery throughout the world so in darkest hour dr channing bore a noble testimony in boston for which his name shall ever live so in illinois e p lovejoy and edward beecher with their associates formed the illinois anti-slavery society amid mobs and at the hazard of their lives and a few hours after lovejoy was shut down in attempting to defend the twice destroyed anti-slavery press in the old-school presbyterian church william and robert breckenridge president young and others have preached in favor of emancipation in kentucky Leroy roy sunderland in the methodist church kept up his newspaper under ban of his superiors and with a bribe on his life of fifty thousand dollars tory meekly patient died in prison saying if i am a guilty man i am a very guilty one for i have helped four hundred slaves to freedom who but for me would have died slaves dr nelson was expelled by mobs from missouri for the courageous declaration of the truth on slave soil all these were in the ministry nor are these all jesus christ has not wholly deserted us yet there have been those who have learned how joyful it is to suffer shame and brave death any good cause. Also there have been private Christians who have counted nothing too dear for this sacred cause. Witness Richard Dillingham and John Garrett, and a host of others who took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. But yet, notwithstanding this, the awful truth remains that the whole of what has been done by the church has not, as yet, perceptibly abated the evil the great system is stronger than ever it is confessedly the dominant power of the nation the whole power of the government and the whole power of the wealth and the whole power of the fashion and the practical organic workings of the large bodies of the church are all gone one way the church is familiarly quoted as being on the side of slavery statesmen on both sides of the question have laid that down as a settled fact infidels point to it with triumph and america too is beholding another class of infidels a class that could have grown up only under such an influence men whose whole life is one study in practice of benevolence are now ranked as infidels because the possession of the church organization misrepresents christianity and they separate themselves from the church we would offer no excuse for any infidels who take for their religion mere anti-slavery zeal and under this guise gratify a malignant hatred of real christianity but such defenses of slavery from the bible as some of the american clergy have made are exactly fitted to make infidels of all honorable and high-minded men the infidels of olden times were not much to be dreaded but such infidels as these are not to be despised woe to the church when the moral standard of the infidel is higher than the standard of the professed christian for the only armor that ever proved invincible to infidelity is the armor of righteousness. Let us see how the church organizations work now, practically. What do Bruin and Hill, Pulliam and Davis, Bolton's Dickens and Company, and Matthew's Branton and Company depend on to keep their slave factories and slave barracoons full, and their business brisk? is it to be supposed that they are not men like ourselves do they not sometimes tremble at the awful workings of fear and despair and agony which they witness when they are tearing asunder living hearts in the depths of those fearful slave prisons what then keeps down the consciences of these traitors It is the public sentiment of the community where they live, and that public sentiment is made by ministers and church members. The trader sees, plainly enough, a logical sequence between the declarations of the church and the practice of his trade. He sees, plainly enough, that if slavery is sanctioned by God, and it is right to set it up in a new territory, it is right to take the means to do this and as slaves do not grow on bushes in texas it is necessary that there should be traitors to gather up coffles and carry them out there and as they cannot always take whole families it is necessary that they should part them and as slaves will not go by moral suasion it is necessary that they should be forced and as gentle force will not do they must whip and torture Hence come gags, thumbscrews, cowhides, blood, all necessary measures of carrying out what Christians say God sanctions. So goes the argument one way. Let us now trace it back the other. The South Carolina and Mississippi presbyteries maintain opinions which, in their legitimate results, endorse the slave trader. The old school general assembly maintains fellowship with these presbyteries without discipline or protest. The new school assembly signifies its willingness to reunite with the old, while at the same time it declares the system of slavery an abomination, a gross violation of the most sacred rights, and so on. Well, now the chain is as complete as need be. All parts are in, everyone standing in his place and saying just what is required and no more. The traitor does the repulsive work, the southern church defends him, the northern church defends the south, everyone does as much for slavery as would be at all expedient, considering the latitude they live in. This is the practical result of the thing. The melancholy part of the matter is that while a large body of new school men and many old school are decided anti-slavery men this denominational position carries their influence on the other side as goes the general assembly so goes their influence the following affecting letter on this subject was written by that eminently pious man dr nelson whose work on infidelity is one of the most efficient popular appeals that has ever appeared i have resided in north carolina more than forty years and been intimately acquainted with the system and i can scarcely even think of its operations without shedding tears it causes me excessive grief to think of my own poor slaves for whom i have for years been trying to find a free home it strikes me with equal astonishment and horror to hear northern people make light of slavery had they seen and known as much of it as i they would not thus treat it unless callous to the deepest woes and degradation of humanity and dead both to the religion and philanthropy of the gospel but many of them are doing just what the hardest-hearted tyrants of the south most desire those tyrants would not on any account have them advocate or even apologize for slavery in an unqualified manner this would be bad policy with the north i wonder that garrett smith should understand slavery so much better than most of the northern people how true was his remark on a certain occasion namely that the south are laughing in their sleeves to think what dupes they make of most of the people at the north in regard to the real character of slavery. Well did Mr. Smith remark that the system, carried out on its fundamental principle, would as soon enslave any laboring white man as the African. But, if it were not for the support of the North, the fabric of blood would fall at once. And of all the efforts of public bodies at the North to sustain slavery, the Connecticut General Association has made the best one. I have never seen anything so well constructed in that line as their resolutions of June 1836. The South certainly could not have asked anything more effectual, but of all northern periodicals, the New York Observer must have the preference as an efficient support of slavery. I am not sure, but it does more than all things combined to keep the dreadful system alive it is just the succour demanded by the south its abuse of the abolitionists is a music in southern ears which operates as a charm but nothing is equal to its harping upon the religious privileges and instruction of the slaves of the south and nothing could be so false and injurious to the cause of freedom and religion as the impression it gives on that subject i say what i know when i speak in relation to this matter i have been intimately acquainted with the religious opportunities of slaves in the constant habit of hearing the sermons which are preached to them and i solemnly affirm that during the forty years of my residence and observation in this line i have never heard a single one of those sermons but what was taken up with the obligations and duties of slaves to their masters indeed i never heard a sermon to slaves but what made obedience to masters by the slaves the fundamental and supreme law of religion any candidate and intelligent man can decide whether such preaching is not as to the religious purposes worse than none at all again it is wonderful how the credulity of the north is subjected to imposition in regard to the kind treatment of slaves for myself i can clear up the apparent contradictions found in writers who have resided at or visited the south the majority of slaveholders say some treat their slaves with kindness now this may be true in certain states and districts setting aside all questions of treatment except that such as refer to the body and yet while the majority of slaveholders in a certain section may be kind the majority of slaves in that section will be treated with cruelty this is the truth in many such cases that there may be thirty men who may have but one slave apiece and that a house-servant a single man in their neighborhood may have a hundred slaves all field hands half fed worked excessively and whipped most cruelly this is what i have often seen to give a case to show the awful influence of slavery upon the master i will mention a presbyterian elder who was esteemed one of the best men in the religion a very kind master i was called to his deathbed to write his will he had what was considered a favorite house-servant a female After all other things were disposed of, the elder paused, as if in doubt what to do with Sue. I entertained, pleasing expectations of hearing the word liberty fall from his lips. But who can tell my surprise when I heard the master exclaim, What shall be done with Sue? I am afraid she will never be under a master severe enough for her shall i say that both the dying elder and his sioux were members of the same church the latter statedly receiving the emblems of a saviour's dying love from the former all this temporizing and concession has been excused on the plea of brotherly love what a plea for us northern freemen Do we think the slave system such a happy desirable thing for our brothers and sisters at the south can we look at our common schools our neat thriving towns and villages our dignified intelligent self-respecting farmers and mechanics all concomitants of free labor and think slavery any blessing to our southern brethren that system which beggars all the lower class of whites which curses the very soil, which eats up everything before it, like the palmer worm, canker, and locust, which makes common schools an impossibility, and the preaching of the gospel almost as much though. This system a blessing? Does brotherly love require us to help the South preserve it? Consider the educational influences under which such children as Eva and Enrique must grow up there. We are speaking of what many a southern mother feels, of what makes many a southern father's heart sore. Slavery has been spoken of in its influence on the family of the slave. There are those who never speak. Who could tell, if they would, its influence on the family of the master? It makes one's heart ache to see generation after generation of lovely noble children exposed to such influences what a country the south might be could she develop herself without this curse if the southern character even under all these disadvantages retains so much that is noble and is fascinating even in its faults what might it do with free institutions who is the real Who is the true and noble lover of the South? They who love her with all these faults and encumbrances? Or they who fix their eyes on the bright ideal of what she might be and say that these faults are no proper part of her? Is it true love to a friend to accept the ravings of insanity as a true specimen of his mind? Is it true love to accept the disfigurement of sickness as a specimen of his best condition? Is it not truer love to say, This curse is no part of our brother. It dishonors him. It does him injustice. It misrepresents him in the eyes of all nations. We love his better self, and we will have no fellowship with his betrayer. This is the part of true, generous Christian love. But will it be said, The abolition enterprise was begun in wrong spirit? By reckless, meddling, imprudent fanatics? Well, supposing this were true, how came it to be so? If the Church of Christ had begun it right, these so-called fanatics would not have begun it wrong. In a deadly pestilence, if the right physicians do not prescribe, everybody will prescribe. Men, women, and children will prescribe because something must be done. If the Presbyterian Church in 1818 had pursued the course the Quakers did, there never would have been any fanaticism. The Quakers did all by brotherly love. They melted the chains of mammon only in the fires of a divine charity. When Christ came into Jerusalem after all the mighty works that he had done, While all the so-called better classes were non-committal or opposed, the multitude cut down branches of palm trees and cried, Hosanna! There was a most indecorous tumult. The very children caught the enthusiasm and were crying, Hosannas in the temple. This was contradictory to all ecclesiastical rules. It was a highly improper state of things the chief priests and scribes said unto jesus master speak unto these that they hold their peace that gentle eye flashed as he answered i tell you if these should hold their peace the very stones would cry out suppose a fire bursts out in the streets of boston while the regular conservators of the city who have the keys of the fire-engines and the regulation of fire-companies are sitting together in some distant part of the city consulting for the public good the cry of fire reaches them but they think it's a false alarm the fire is no less real for all that it burns and rages and roars till everybody in their neighborhood sees that something must be done a few stout leaders break open the doors of the engine-houses drag out the engines and begin regularly or irregularly but the destroyer still advances messengers come in hot haste to the whole of these liberators and in the unselect language of fear and terror revile them for not coming out bless me says a decorous leader of the body what horrible language these men use they show a very bad spirit remarks another We can't possibly join them in such a state of things. Here the more energetic members of the body rush out to see if the thing be really so, and in a few minutes come back, if possible more earnest than the others. Oh, there is a fire, a horrible, dreadful fire. The city is burning. Men, women, children, all burning, perishing. Come out, come out. As the Lord liveth, there is but a step between us and death. "'I am not going out. Everybody that goes gets crazy,' says one. "'I've noticed,' says another, "'that as soon as anybody goes out to look, he gets just so excited, I won't look.' But by this time the angry fire has burned into their very neighborhood. The red demon glares into their windows, and now, fairly aroused, They get up and begin to look out. Well, there is a fire, and no mistake, says one. Something ought to be done, says another. Yes, says a third, if it wasn't for being mixed up with such a crowd and rabble of folks, I'd go out. Upon my word, says another, there are women in the ranks carrying pails of water. There, one woman is going up a ladder to get those children out. What an indecorum! If they had managed this matter more properly, we would join them. And now come lumbering over from Charlestown the engines and fire companies. What impudence of Charlestown, say these men, to be sending over here just as if we could not put our own fires out. They have fires over there as much as we do. And now the flames roar and burn and shake hands across the streets. They leap over the steeples and glare demoniacally out of the church windows. For heaven's sakes, do something, is the cry. Pull down the houses, blow up those blocks of stores with gunpowder, anything to stop it. See now what ultra-radical measures they are going at, says one of those spectators. Brave men who have rushed into the thickest of the fire come out and fall dead in the streets. They are impracticable enthusiasts. They have thrown their lives away in foolhardiness, says another. So, Church of Christ, burns that awful fire, evermore burning, 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 over church and altar, burning over senate, house and forum, burning up liberty, burning up religion. No earthly hands kindle that fire, From its sheeted flame and wreaths of sulfurous smoke glares out upon thee the eye of that enemy who was a murderer from the beginning. It is a fire that burns to the lowest hell. Church of Christ, there was an hour when this fire might have been extinguished by thee. Now thou standest like a mighty man astonished, like a mighty man that cannot save. But the hope of Israel is not dead. The Savior thereof, in time of trouble, is yet alive. If every church in our land were hung with mourning, if every Christian should put on sackcloth, if the priest should weep between the porch and the altar, and say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thy heritage to reproach, that were not too great a mourning for such a time as this. O church of Jesus, consider what hath been said in the midst of thee. What a heresy hast thou tolerated in thy bosom! Thy God, the defender of slavery? Thy God, the patron of slave law? Thou hast suffered the character of thy God to be slandered. Thou hast suffered false witness against thy Redeemer and thy Sanctifier. The holy trinity of heaven has been foully traduced in the midst of thee, and that God, whose throne is awful injustice, has been made the patron and leader of oppression. This is a sin against every Christian on the globe. Why do we love and adore beyond all things our God? Why do we say to him from our innermost souls, Whom have I in heaven but thee? and there is none upon earth I desire beside thee. Is this a bought-up worship? Is it a cringing and hollow subserviency, because he is great and rich and powerful, and we dare not do otherwise? His eyes are a flame of fire. He reads the inmost soul, and will accept no such service. From our souls we adore and love him because he is holy and just and good and will not at all acquit the wicked. We love him because he is the father of the fatherless, the judge of the widow, because he lifteth all who fall and raiseth them that are bowed down. We love Jesus Christ because he is the lamb without spot, the one altogether lovely. We love the holy comforter because he comes to convince the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. O Holy Church Universal, throughout all countries and nations, O ye great cloud of witnesses, of all people in languages and tongues, differing in many doctrines, but united in crying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, for he hath redeemed us all from iniquity. Awake! Rise up, be not silent, testify against this heresy of the latter day, which, if it were possible, is deceiving the very elect. Your God, your glory is slandered. Answer with the voice of many waters and mighty thunderings. Answer with the innumerable multitude in heaven who cry day and night, holy, holy, holy. Just and true are thy ways, O King of Saints. End of part four, chapter two, American Church and Slavery, part three.